This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 3, Episode 17. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 17 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Puny-Hatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Puny-Hatton. Good afternoon, Randy. Hello, Lynn. Barely afternoon, actually. Barely, Barely. afternoon. Minutes. <laughs> yes, it's 12.01, and... Uh, Looking forward to talking with our guest today, Kyle Wagner, author of The Power of Simple, How to Transform Your School by Co- Conquering Standards, Individualizing Learning, and Creating a Community of Innovators. Kyle is the founder and lead consultant for Transform Educational Consulting, where he focuses on empowering school leaders to improve instructional practice and student learning through innovative programs and teaming structures. Kyle is also the former coordinator of Futures Academy at the International School of Beijing, a program that uses interdisciplinary project-based learning to connect students to their passions and the world outside of school. Previously, Kyle was an educator at High Tech High and holds a master's degree in teacher leadership. Thanks for coming on the show, Kyle. Thanks for having me. So we were chatting a little before the show and uh, Kyle's got a lot of energy. Looking forward to this conversation. Yes. yes, and the and the topic of the conversation because Kyle has some uh, interesting background experiences that he brings to his work, and I'm um, really curious to hear. So let's actually start this conversation off with that. So you've worked at uh, Futures Academy and High Tech High, and given uh, your experiences with that, let's start the conversation off with a a glimpse into what learning looks like in those schools and how that's shaped your vision for this idea of redesigning schools. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I I think really to give you a glimpse into learning is kind of to visualize what it looks like when you step foot into a classroom or into an open space where kids are working. Uh, And one of the things that you're going to find in these particular schools, uh, High Tech High, if you're not familiar with High Tech High, was started um, as a collaboration between Qualcomm, an engineering firm, and some uh, really uh, Harvard graduates that, that wanted a different vision for learning, one that really had students uh, as, the, as the agents um, in creating the, their own learning um, and really creating the uh, kind of projects uh, that really were engaging them. And I think so that's something that you will see when you step foot. If you step foot in high tech high, one of the uh, very first thing people notice is, is that the teacher is not really present. It's very hard actually to find a teacher. 
And that's generally because uh, the students are running the classroom because it's such an engaging environment. It's a very fluid space. There's no bells or prescribed schedules. Um, if there is direct instruction, it's as part of the process of students coming to and understanding what they need to know to be successful in whatever the project task is. You see a lot of building. Um, you'll see a lot of inquiry. You might see a couple students uh, over on the board talking to each other about some of the ideas that they have for a particular project they're running. There might be some um, materials in the side, whether it be a 3D printer or students are prototyping something. Um, so you see a, a very differentiated uh, space as well. Um, students engage in all different types of work. And Sometimes you actually might see two teachers in that space once you finally find them. Um, sometimes they look like the kids <laughs> and they're called they're uh, called by their first names. So it might be like, you know, Mr. Mark or Mr. Kyle. Um, and that's that's uh, very intentional as well um, is to have more of this kind of flat, flat distribution line um, of leadership within the classroom. So that's kind of what it looks like in high tech high. Uh, Futures Academy would be very similar uh, in that it would be kind of hard to find a teacher. The space that you were occupying wouldn't look like a traditional classroom space. It would be broken up with movable walls. Uh, you'd also see maybe small breakout rooms, uh, but never really uh, an activity where there's 40 students doing the same thing all together and it's led by a teacher in front of the classroom. So those are some, some of the differences that you'd see. So some of the connections I'm making to what you're sharing there uh, is something we've been thinking about and talking to a lot of different people about, and that's learner agency. So it's this idea that the students are uh, have much more voice and choice and control over uh, the product, the path, the process of learning, um, and and also the shifting role of the teacher. That in these environments we really uh, are shaking up <laughs> that idea of what uh, traditionally teachers and learners do. Um, so thanks for painting that picture for us, because I think that really helps give us some context uh, for the conversation around your book. So that's okay. a nice segue there, Randy. <laughs> What's the big question or the big idea um, behind your book, The Power of Simple? Yeah, I mean, the, really the, the big question behind the, the power of simple is what simple changes can we implement in school that are really going to give us the, the most impact on student learning, uh, the best impact for what we're looking for student learning in this particular century. And, you know, people throw out this term, you know, 21st century skills all the time, and it's getting, it's kind of like being in a dead horse, but it's a little bit, I think, nebulous for how do, how do people, or uh, how do teachers create this environment that is going to be conducive uh, for students actually pursuing uh, the mastery of these particular skills. Um, and, and so the power of simple is kind of lays out really a blueprint of the simple shifts, um, not just in thinking, but in the shifts in the way in which we do schooling that teachers can start really, uh, what is today, Wednesday, um, that they could start doing tomorrow. Um, and I, I think it's, there's a lot of books that are out there, um, which are great. Uh, because, you know, they provide lots of different ideas and strategies for teachers, but really I think they need a starting point um, in something that's commonsensical and something that's worked in some kind of model um, so that they can start really making those changes. And that's really the big question that the power um, of simple uh, answers. That idea of keeping things simple and finding those uh, easy entry points for teachers as well as leaders, I thought i I think that was very, very clear in the book. And that was one of the things that I really connected to this idea um, that in education, too, we have these perceived barriers. And how do we use those barriers as those entry points? So you talk about things like scheduling and space and 
the idea that we teach subjects in silos and, and how do we sort of blow all that up and, and change that. So looking at um, these barriers that can sometimes overwhelm us as teachers and leaders, what do you suggest would be some first steps to overcoming any of those barriers, all these kinds of barriers, and realizing this more progressive vision for learning? Yeah, sure. I, I think those barriers exist because those are usually the starting point for our planning. You know, our starting point of our planning, our curriculum documents, the starting point for our planning are our schedules that we work around. The starting point for our planning is the fact that we teach in these subject specific silos. And so I think if that's still the starting point and you're doing things kind of the same way, and now you're looking to break out of these schedules or you're looking to connect to the teacher next door, um, you're, you're kind of in a tough position because your starting point were those kind of barriers. Um, I think a way to shift out of that in a simple uh, switch in thinking is to really plan the learning experiences and think about a simple outcome that you're going to ask students to produce and then start getting into the complexity of what that project might look like. And now you start thinking, okay, what's the schedule that's going to be most conducive for doing this? Or what's the schedule I have now? And how can I rework this schedule or use this schedule to get to this particular outcome? So for example, if you're wanting uh, kids to look at a, a local estuary and that estuary is becoming threatened um, by you know, development and that's right outside the back door of your school, uh, well then try to plan out the experience and look at what what might kids do in terms of protection of that estuary? And now you start looking at your barriers that used to be barriers of entry, like your schedules, um, who, who is actually delivering the content in terms of teachers? Um, what are the, does the assessment look like? And now those things aren't barriers anymore. Those are opportunities for you. Uh, so I'd say those are, that's one of the first things you can do is really look at what's a simple outcome that you want students to produce and what's all the learning they're going to need to get there. And now how can you look um, at kind of reworking some of those uh, perceived barriers of entry? And what does that look like reworking some of those barriers of, or perceived barriers as we've been talking to many of our guests, you know, what are, what are some ways that you navigate that? Because sometimes those barriers can be a real stumbling block for us. You know, we have, a mindset of what the teacher should be doing, or we have, um, you know, the schedule. And when you make one change, it affects everything else. You know, how do you how do you engage in that pro that process of navigating those? Yeah, and I think you know it's it's obviously easier for me said than done in some places because you know I was given a, a blank ticket uh, to to really rewrite what is what is our schooling going to look like. Let's say we have none of those barriers. So to be fair to any of these listeners, you know, I, and I want to empathize in your particular position. Some of you are kind of up against an administration that might not be supportive of what you're doing. Uh, you might be up against so many um, standards that you feel like, hey, there's no way I could do something that engaging because I can't get all my standards. Um, and that's what I'm going to be measured and evaluated on. Um, how do I convince the teachers? How do I do this with 30 uh, students in four different classes? So I want to empathize and first say that it, that it is a challenge. But with that said, um, I think the way that you navigate around that is you look at what is your area or sphere of control that you have as a teacher. You know, I was a teacher recently in a public system that was very, very much top down bureaucratic and looking at, well, what can I do? And one of the simple things that we did, and it was English language learners, is we just reworked our particular unit that we had to do, and we made that more project-based. Um, we were teaching these English language learners about local disasters, and they were learning the vocabulary with that. And instead of them just writing an essay at the end about local disasters, they were creating 
um, a, a little uh, public service announcement that they shared with uh, people at the school to help them become prepared for an earthquake should an earthquake hit the school. And all I had to do for that is reach out to the other ESL teacher um, and work with them. I didn't have to convince the entire ESL department, but I'll tell you what, once we did that, uh, the whole ESL department for the entire district now wanted to do something like this and, and said, hey, can we get some of those documents you used for that plan, for that project? And pretty much everyone then started doing that. So that was a simple change that was just reaching out to one teacher outside of my classroom um, and really getting others on board through that. I would say don't try to convince and raise an army right away because that's not going to work. Get one ally um, on your side. And I think the same thing if you're a visionary leader like yourself, get the teachers that you know are gung-ho about this, and they're going to be the ones dancing in the corner doing the crazy things with kids that everyone else wants to do pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, the energy and passion and enthusiasm does tend to drive more energy, right? Yep. So you mentioned project-based learning. Um, Brandy and I, as we talked a little bit before we started recording the show, um, two years ago, spent some time working with our teachers and community and students and leaders to develop our profile of a graduate. And, um, you know, in this profile of a graduate, we articulated the knowledge, skills, and dispositions that we want to see represented in our graduates. How can project-based learning be a tool or an approach or a way uh, for teachers to engage students in developing those knowledge, skills, and dispositions articulated in a profile of a graduate? Yeah, and just a shout out to the work that you guys did um, for all the listeners on this show. Uh, the you know the graduate profile, I've I've seen that and used that myself actually in the one that you guys came up with at Salisbury because that's very groundbreaking work. And I love the idea that you kind of planned backwards and said what kind of skills and dispositions do we want our graduates exiting um, our school with, and how how do we get them there? So that um, that was very powerful work that you did. Um, so I, I think really project-based learning is a simple structure that helps get at really all the outcomes that we're trying to get to. We did the same thing at the school I was at, um, International School of Beijing. We looked at what are all these transitions and changes we want to see from our students and really what's, what's a method to get them there. And look, you know, you as well as I know, because we're very much in the education world, if you go to Edutopia and you go from A to Z on topics, there's like there's over a hundred, like, so to me, I think that's, I find that to be both, you know, extremely uh, encouraging because there's so much work that's being out there, but it's also a little bit daunting. Like what's the starting point when you have all these terms like a PBL or student centered learning or passion project or steams or STEM or makerspace or differentiation or tech integration or the SAMR model. Like we have all these acronyms and we don't have a simple kind of structure to help us get at that. And I'm telling you, a good project is going to get at almost all of those things. Uh, for students to be successful in the project, they're going to have to be able to communicate and collaborate. Um, you know, and giving you a real concrete example, we had students who were uh, trying to create uh, an improvement in the local waterways. This is over in Beijing. Well, uh, in order for them to create that innovation, they obviously had to learn about the innovative process, the design thinking process to do that. Well, that's still embedded within the project. Uh, they had to collaborate with local experts um, because to find out what they're already doing. Okay, that involves collaboration. What's the other disposition we want? Global thinking. Okay, well, to get this disposition, what is the rest of the world doing around this issue of water quality? And uh, we want kids to be critical thinkers. Well, how are they analyzing the data that they've collected? And, and reiterating and reiterating before they come up with their final innovation. So 
everything that we're trying to get at in terms of skills and dispositions we want our graduates leaving with, you can get at in a really well-designed project. So that's why I'm obviously an evangelist for project-based learning. So it's this idea that um, we define those kinds of knowledge, skills, and dispositions that we want our students to do. And we're sort of expanding this idea of what uh, learning is and what I hate to say student achievement, but outcomes should be. It's not this thin uh, idea of like a test score. There's a whole palette of other things that we want kids to learn. And you've described nicely this idea that project-based learning is something that really touches on all those things, the ways that we've expanded this idea of what we want our students to know and be able to do. And there's, there's a much more real-world connection to those things, too. To, there's not such a great real world connection to that um, thin sliver of identifying outcomes as a test score, not, not real, real world there. Um, but the idea of working on projects uh, takes that redefined idea of achievement and outcomes and uh, connects it more towards what people do outside of school uh, when, they're, when they're working and learning. Uh, so, yeah. so I make those connections to that as well. So from your experience at Futures Academy and High Tech High, kind of going back to this idea of learner agency when you talked about um, those experiences there, what is the role of learner agency in creating powerful learning environments? So more of a philosophical question? Yeah. So for example, I, I, I mean, we'll start with the philosophical pursuit and then I'll give you kind of a concrete example. Um, again, I think le learner agency and, you know, to be fair, because I think everybody has maybe a different understanding of what learner agency is. I actually um, Googled learner agency <laughs> and looked up the official definition of learner agency to make sure we're on the same page. <laughs> you better tell like, us what that definition was. <laughs> ah, shoot. I know. I know. I need to go back to it. But it was like, I think it's like students creating, uh, creating their own meeting. Um, and, you know, and students pretty much directing the process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so given that in, in learner agency and, and how do you set up those processes and what happens when learners, there is learner agency. And I think that's visible, like from the minute you step um, foot into a, into a classroom, you think who owns this space, you know, and who owns this space is easily uh, observable by who's talking, um, you know, who's constructing meaning, who's constructing learning, what are the students talking about? What are the students doing? What are the tasks they are engaged with? Is it some kind of worksheet that has been, you know, teacher created? Um, all of these are really good examples to see what learner agency is. And I think your question getting at what does it do uh, to the environment when you see good examples of learner agency, I think that you see the environment becomes one that is very intriguing, it's engaging for students, um, there's, there's a lot of smiles. There's a lot of uh, focus on particular tasks that they're in, engrossed in because they know that what they're doing is going to make a difference. So I think the best way to set up learner agency in it, you know, since we're really focused on power of simple is give students authentic tasks, um, to complete, you know, give them, give students authentic challenges. And I told Lynn earlier, uh, and because I don't want to get, uh, necessarily bleeped out. I'll just say BS and we know what BS stands for. <laughs> but um, students are very good uh, BS detectors, you know, and especially I think middle school to high school students. And some of those things that we might have been able to get a, get away with at the earlier years um, because, you know, students are more apt to, uh, to follow and trust the teacher um, aren't really going to necessarily fly when they get to middle school and high school. So the way to set up learner agency 
is to say, I'm, we're going to create a task, an authentic challenge for students where they're actually going to make a difference. They're going to get outside of their four walls of the classroom um, and really have an impact in whatever kind of project that they're working on and whether it's presenting it to people in the field who, who actually can make a difference, whether it's setting up a particular website or place for them to share their work with a global audience. Um, I mean, I, there's an example. Talk about learner agency. I'll give you a perfect concrete example. Um, there, they, we always have these you know, global conferences, and a lot of these conferences are now conducted digitally. You probably know about Google Education on Air um, and these other conferences that um, are just uh, teachers and administrators delivering content, and people are signing up for it, and they can tune in from all parts of the world. Well, this particular one was completely student-run. The students set up an entire uh, digital conference, which gives me goosebumps to think about because talk about learner agency from reaching out to all the different experts that they wanted to share, reaching out to different schools and getting students to share about projects that they've been engaged in, uh, designing the web uh, page uh, to make it very interactive, designing how they're going to archive the, the learning that took place, uh, de designing how they're going to do the scripts uh, to, to the marketing of the actual um, conference itself. That right there is student agency because it's literally taking an adult task and just giving it completely uh, to students. So um, that that's an example. Engage students in in really an authentic uh, challenge or task where they know that what they're doing actually can make a difference. So one of the connections I'm making is uh, Lynn and I met with groups of high school students on Monday and Tuesday of this week, and uh, just really for the sole purpose of talking about their learning. What what is challenging about learning in the high school and what is engaging about learning in the high school. And a lot of what they had to share, both positive and negative, boiled down to this idea of learner agency. And, and like you said, um, participating in authentic tasks and not really to engage with the inauthentic tasks of like just do the 20 problems at the back of the book kind of stuff, um, but more engaged in um, those real world tasks and things that connect to their personal passions, the things that they're interested in and finding opportunities, teachers finding opportunities for kids to create, to make those connections of what they enjoy and what they are like and what they're passionate and curious about and making those connections to whatever the content is. So um, learner agency is definitely something that's in, in our, in our, the forefront of our thinking at this mm -hmm. time. And, and, and that, I think the best way to learn about it is just talk to kids and, mm -hmm. and it becomes, it, it definitely boils to the surface. They yeah. had a, they had a lot of ideas about having voice and having some choice and getting um, teacher time, one-on-one -on -one teacher time or conferencing with teachers and, you know, hands-on opportunities and even labs, you know, they, they were really were able to articulate um, many of the, many of the components that we would probably find in the Google definition for a learner agency. Uh, yeah. And so I, th I think by you doing that obviously is, is so empowering for them to know that they have a voice and that, you know, you're going to use some of the feedback that they give uh, to, to be able to kind of reconstruct some of, some of these in environments. And, you know, I was just talking about this the other day. One of the biggest shifts I think for teachers to give learner agency is to accept um, the fact that they might not know all the information, <laughs> you know, um, for you to set up your class and you're going to, let's say you're going to set up a maker space and you've never done it before. You have to be comfortable with that uncertainty. You know, um, let's say that you're entering into, um, some, 
some tech piece and you're asking kids to create things on computers that you might not be comfortable with. Like it takes that, it takes a lot of courage and confidence in the teacher saying, you know what, the kids might know more than I do mm-hmm. about this. And they probably do. And I'm never going to know more than them, no matter how many late nights I spend away from the family trying to figure this stuff out, you know? And once they accept that, they can really help facilitate the experiences to give students complete agency of their learning. And this, they're going to be pleasantly surprised. And at the end of the day, when it's, they ask the teacher, wow, you know, they, they compliment the teacher, the teacher turns it right back to the kids and says, I didn't really do anything. Like all I did is set up the space for the students to do that. So as, as we wrap up some of our questions, Kyle, is there any other advice that you would want to give to leaders who are supporting these teachers as they make uh, these changes that you um, share with us during the interview and also in your book um, or anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I would say keep, you know, keep fighting the good fight. And I say keep fighting the good fight because regardless of where you're at in education, sometimes it, it does feel like that. It always feels like it's an uphill battle. Um, especially if you're trying to do something very new. Uh, not everyone's as fortunate to have a visionary leaders as yourself um, within the district. And sometimes that can be feel, feel very frustrating. So look, it's, it's towards the end of the year. So I don't really have to say keep fighting the good fight because everyone's so excited for uh, probably summer break and they're ready to recharge, <laughs> recharge their jets anyways. But you know, you're going to get back to that grind next year and there's going to be points where you're going to, we're going to feel that. So I would say my biggest advice is just keep it as simple as possible. Don't get overwhelmed by the sheer enormity of change. Uh, start with a single step. Think about one thing that you can do differently and that's going to motivate you. And if God forbid you are in a place where every single year you're literally the most, you feel like the most innovative person at school and you're reaching out to all teachers, no one's working with you. If your back is up against the wall every single year, I would say, and I, I say this, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do this, but look for greener pastures because I've been in those situations and you, you can only fight so long until you find, hey, you know what? I maybe need to leave this space and find another place that values this kind of work because they're out there. Um, and so those, those are my two pieces of advice. So good advice. And as the educator population heads into the summer, you know, check out Kyle's book and uh, any other resources that we've shared or will share here on the podcast uh, and get re-energized by that. So uh, you've written this book and you're doing some consulting work, running your business. And what's next for you? What, What kinds of other things do you have on the horizon here? Yeah. So, I mean, a big, a big thing that's next for me and just to describe really, you know, quickly for listeners, what I do is I, you know, I work with schools now that are going through this kind of transition that they're leading change. Um, and they're looking to introduce innovative programs and give students more agency. And so I work with those schools, um, in trans helping them to transition. And generally the way we do it is, is we look at a small pilot, uh, group, you know, those first pioneers and we, we work with them on trainings and workshops and delivering this kind of um, pedagogical shift so that they can, they can really start to implement those experiences with students. So um, that is currently what I'm doing, but my biggest uh, two things that I'm excited about right now is because people are all over the world and asking for uh, project-based learning training, and you could fly, literally fly teachers out to this big project-based learning training. And you probably know as superintendents uh, that that, could start uh, accumulating a lot of funding <laughs> right away because you got the flights, you've got the hotels they got to stay in. 
Uh, you got the workshop fee that they have to attend, you know, and then you, of course, you as superintendents want to see that information disseminated across your entire district. And sometimes that's usually where the buck stops. Uh, sometimes those teachers are trained and then that's it. So I'm working on putting together an online course right now uh, for project-based learning. So it really includes all the different modules. Of how do you take uh, an idea that you have, turn that into a project? Um, what are the resources you need? How do you assess that? Um, how do you plan out the timeline? How do you connect that to other teachers? And so that's something I'm excited about now. And I was just recording um, another uh, module for that right before we started this call. So I'm excited about that. Um, so that's a project that I'm working on right now to get that out to people all over the world. And then um, also a more physical type of project is there's a, a school over in Hong Kong uh, that I'm most likely may be going over to work with on a long-term basis. And it's a Montessori elementary school that's trying to transition into a middle school with that Montessori type of philosophy, but also mixed with project-based learning. And so working on that long-term project. So those are my kind of two things right now in the works and things I'm excited about. Excited to hear more about that. And once you finish your course, we'd be happy to update our post in the show notes and add information about that course. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Kyle. For our listeners to learn more about Kyle's work, you can visit um, his blog at Transform Educational Consulting. You can also check it out on Facebook. Follow Kyle on Twitter at KWAGSD3 and check out his book, The Power of Simple. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking some conversation. So this episode's question, what simple action can you take today to address one of the barriers holding you back from transforming your learning environment? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find more resources and links that were shared in the episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season three, episode 16. That's all for now. Check out the next episode for another conversation with an innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Kyle. Thank you. Thanks, Kyle. Bye-bye. Bye, Lynn. Bye-bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.